For those of you that are remaining in here with me, if you would, we are uh, doing a journey through the book of Philippians. We're in chapter 2 now. Uh, we want to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 this morning. So if you would, find your Bibles, open up uh, your apps, whatever it is that you are using this morning, or it will be on the screen for you. Uh, but Philippians chapter 2 is uh, where we're going to be looking at, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 4 uh, for you this morning. So uh, as they're getting the children out, if you are here, found your place in your Bible, if you don't mind, stand as we honor the reading of the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul writing here to us in chapter 2, says, If there are therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves." Look, not every man on his own thing, but every man also on the things of others. Father, we thank you for the word of the Lord in this short little passage says so much this morning. We pray that, Father, that you would be gracious to move me out of the way and hide me behind the cross, that it not be my word, but your word that is spoken, and not my will, but your will be done. And let your people respond accordingly, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. I want to talk to you this morning about united we stand, divided we fall. The Apostle Paul writing here to us in chapter 1 talked about the outside persecutions that have come against the church and against him in the preaching of the gospel. And now in chapter 2, in the beginning of the verses, he begins to remind us that um, persecution oftentimes drives us closer to the Lord. But there is something that Satan has learned over the years that splinters and, and separates and divides the church, and that is internal conflict. And so the Apostle Paul begins to talk about unity and disunity. Whenever there is disunity in the church, danger is on the horizon. Disunity very seldom becomes a problem because of external forces of, or persecution. Rather, disunity comes because of a personal agenda by one or more persons in the body of Christ. Disunity happens because we take our eyes off the primary mission of the church. Christian fellowship is essential to advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Satan knows that if he can create disunity in the body of Christ, he will cease the work of the sharing of the gospel. And so he works greatly at attacking not only from without, but also from within. Attacking at the point of the fellowship of the body of Christ within the church. The last time we saw Paul focused on the church standing strong in the face of persecution, 
that Satan's attacks from without did not do what he had hoped. He did not separate or splinter the church, but drew the church together so that Paul said the preaching of the gospel is moving forward in spite of the persecution of those from the outside. But if opposition from the outside doesn't work, Satan invariably seeks to divide the church from within. This does not mean that we will never have disagreements. Church, we will oftentimes have times when we will see things from different points of view. Different projects will take on different ideologies to different people. It is quite normal for us to have differences of opinions on certain methods of the church activity. But we should never, ever compromise on the essential of our faith and the truth of the Word of God. And when we do have differences of opinion, the governing factor in the work of the Lord has to be the love of Christ. The preferential love that always seeks the highest good of others. And that is why Paul urges the Philippian believers to practice Christian fellowship in these few verses. He is concerned that the Philippians might allow the inner divisions to disrupt their unity and keep them from advancing the gospel in their community. And a little later on, uh, as we dig a little deeper, we'll find that there was some disunity in the body of Christ here at Philippi. There were a, a few folks that were going at it. And Paul said, listen, we must nip it in the bud. We must deal with it immediately. We must make sure that it does not affect the working and the fellowship of the body of Christ. And Paul was concerned that sin from within might do more damage than sin from without. Unity is not only an important as a sign against opposition, but also for the proper functioning of the body of Christ. Today, I want us to consider three principles for uniting in Christian fellowship that Paul shares with us in these verses. He tells us Christian fellowship is motivated by God's love for us. Just as God loved us, we ought to love one another. And it is the love that allows us to overlook small things that we might have differences among the body. The second thing he says, Christian fellowship unites around the gospel. It is the fact that the gospel is what took us that when we were outside of the family of God and brought us into the family of God. It is the very thing that unites us as the family of God. Thirdly, we're going to look at Christian fellowship unites us to humbly serve each other. Paul reminds us that, listen, if we are going to be in the family of God, then we must be like the family of God, and we must take on the same mind as Christ, and Christ had the mind to come and to serve. He said, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve, and therefore I have said unto my followers, go and do likewise. Now I could end the sermon right there, but I've got much more I want to share, so I'm going to break it down a little bit deeper for you. 
told you everything I'm going to tell you today in a nutshell. Now I'm going, to, I'm going to flesh it out in a little bit more detail. First of all, let's consider Christian fellowship being motivated by God's love. In verse 1, the, the Apostle Paul says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies... Now, I know that's a mouthful, but let me just kind of break it down for you. There are four things that the Apostle Paul wants us to see in this verse. If we look at this, we find that the first principle, that number one thing, is Christian fellowship motivated by God's love for us through Christ. Christian fellowship is motivated by that love. You will notice that there are four ifs in this one verse alone. Now, these ifs are important because uh, as we look at all four of them, we're going to see that they have a purpose behind them. I want you to understand that Paul is not talking about four ifs as if they were some um, mere possibility. But yet the word if here is not a possibility, but a certainty, a reality. He's using this to get our attention to say, if, oh, there's no if, it is a reality. If, no uncertainty, but reality. So Paul is telling us that he has no doubt that these things that he is asking are true. You could almost translate them with the word since, or surely as. Since there is the comfort of love, or surely as there is the comfort of love. Since you have encouragement from being united in Christ, as surely as you have comfort from His love, and so on and so on. The four realities that Paul rises here um, are experienced by all Christians and they form the basis for the Christian fellowship that God wants His church to be in. So let's look at them very quickly. If you have any encouragement in Christ. Paul says it this way in the King James, if there therefore any consolation in Christ. The word consolation simply means encouragement. If you can find any encouragement by God loving you, well, let me just ask a few more questions. As a Christian, do you have any encouragement from being united with Christ? Any at all? Well, let's look at what the Scripture says. As we think about these next series of questions, I want you to hear what the Bible says. There are, are some questions that we need to ask in such a way that they are called rhetorical questions. Everybody knows what a rhetorical question is. It's a question that you ask that you already know the answer is yes. <laughs> you know, but we ask our kids this. Do you think I want you to take out the garbage now? Well, yeah. That's exactly what, when you ask me, I think you meant for me to do it now, not at my convenience. <laughs> But we ask those kinds of questions, and God asked those kinds of questions throughout Scripture. He asked a question to get us to, to think about it just for a moment, to say, oh, yeah, he meant for us to do that now, not when we get ready to, but now. All right, so listen, I want to ask a series of rhetorical questions. 
Is there any encouragement to you that your sins have been forgiven and that you have been made a new creation in Christ and that all things are passed away and God makes all things new? He asked that rhetorical question in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Do you not know that old things are passed away? Do you not know that and when we become a Christian, we're united in faith and we become new? Do you not know that? Is there any encouragement to you that Jesus has promised never to leave you nor forsake you? He reminds us of that in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20 and Hebrews 13, 5. Is it any encouragement to you that Jesus prays for you in heaven? He's interceding for you today, just as you interceded for your neighbor around you today. My Father says that that my Savior is praying to the Father every day. He's interceding on my behalf and your behalf. I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged by that. That when I don't know if anybody else is praying for me, I know Jesus is because He knows what I'm going through when nobody else might. Is there any encouragement to you that Jesus knows his sheep and he gives them eternal life and that they shall never perish and that no one can snatch them out of his hands, John chapter 10? Is it any encouragement to you since you have been united with him in his death? You are certainly also being united with him in his resurrection. We may die, but yet shall we live. We are going to see him again, of course. Paul asked uh, this question knowing that the answer is always going to be, of course we do. Paul knows that. He is simply appealing to your Christian experience, your walk with Christ. Can you not say, I have experienced these because I have walked with Christ more than a day? And listen, let me tell you something. If you walked with him more than a day, you've experienced these things as a Christian. The second thing that he asks is, if, if you have any comfort from God's love. Is there any comfort of love? Paul may still be talking specifically of Christ's love here, but I believe that we can think more in the terms of God the Father here. Paul often speaks in the um, Trinity, moving from Christ to God the Father to the Holy Spirit. We find a similar progression in Paul's writing in 2 2 Corinthians 13 when Paul writes, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. In Romans chapter 5, he tells us that God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Either way, whether he's speaking of Jesus or God, Paul is appealing to, once again, to that experience of every believer that we have experienced God's love through the Savior. As a Christian, do you have any comfort from knowing that God loves you? That he chose you in Christ before the creation of the world, Paul said in Ephesians 1.4. That he sent you his only son to die for you, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
Does it give you any encouragement and comfort of love that, that you have been adopted as a, a child and that the love of the Father loves you as the Son? That he who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all will not only be with us, graciously give you all things. Paul said in Romans 8, 32. Once again, the rhetorical question leaves only one answer. If you have walked with Christ at any amount of time, you know the comfort of his love. If you've walked through the valley of the shadow of death, if you've walked through the heartache of, uh, uh, of a rebellious child, if you have, if you have had a, a, a trouble in your marriage, you have seen the love of God come to your aid. Once again, our answer can't mean anything else but yes. For it is an experience that every one of us has when we walk with Christ. Of course we have the comfort of God's love with us. And then thirdly, he says, if you have any fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Paul keeps on going here. If, if any fellowship of that Spirit, the word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, which we get our word fellowship or partnership, what Paul said in, in, in chapter 1, that we're in fellowship and partnership of the gospel with him. Paul is appealing to our Christian experience once again here. As Christians, we all share together in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every one of us has one common thing as a believer in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. If we don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, it simply means that we are not yet born into the family of God. If we walk into a room of a group of people and our spirit does not check out their spirit and say we are of like spirit, one of us in the room is lost. And somebody better be checking it out. Because our spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, speaks to the other spirits that are in the room and he communes and says, that is one of like spirit. They have the, possess the same Holy Spirit. We're of kindred. It is through the Holy Spirit that God the Father and Jesus the Son come to dwell within us, John says in chapter 14. It's through the Holy Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father, and know that we are God's children, Romans chapter 8. It is through the Holy Spirit that we receive guidance and counsel and peace of Christ that passes all understanding, John says again. Paul reminds us later on in Philippians chapter 4. It is through the Holy Spirit that we have been made into one body in Christ to glorify God the Father. Of course, we have and need fellowship with the Spirit. For it is the Spirit that connects us together. We are a family of God, not because we're a blood relationship, but because we have been in one Spirit. We have been unified together in Christ through Him. And then he asked the fourth question, if you have any inside affections... Now, the King James, and you may have a different translation, but the King James here says, if any bowels and mercies, then we go, what? That just seems disgusting. <laughs> but listen, let me remind you of something. In Paul's day, 
in those times when they thought of the seat of emotions, it was the bowels, the inner workings of our gut. As we oftentimes say, I have a gut feeling. Well, that's kind of where that came from, is that the, the seed of emotions was in their bowels, in their guts. Or another one was their kidneys. They oftentimes referred to it there. Can you imagine if, if Paul would have been a Hallmark card writer back then? He would have said, you know, come Valentine's, my dear, you know, my kidneys are given all for you. It just doesn't have the same ring as my heart is your heart. Uh, thank God we now consider the seed of all of our emotions, our heart is so much more pleasant. But I've been asked the question, if Jesus lives within our heart and we have a heart transplanted, we give our heart to somebody else, does that mean Jesus is in them now? No, that's not quite how it works either. Um, you know, so we, we, we need to understand it's a matter of expression about what kind of feelings do you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there a deep-seated love, desire, and emotion for them? In Psalms 103, it says, As the Father has compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him, and He knows how we are formed and remembers that we are mere dust. God loves us with a tender compassion as a father loves his children. When we think about these two words, bowels and mercies, or inner uh, thinking, we know that they mean both mercy and, and love. Do you show mercy and love to your fellow brethren? Let me just remind you that these two words are important because they're intertwined. You can't have one without the other. You can't have the, the love of God for the brethren without showing the mercy of God. You can't show the mercy of God without first having the love for the brethren. It's an impossibility. The two are so important, and that's why Paul ties them together in the way that he does. He says we've got to have that love and that mercy. It has to be together in order for it to work. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that our experience of God's love should affect our relationship with each other. Out of his love for us, out of his encouragement to us, we ought to be able to show that to one another. The second thing that we learn here in verse 2 is Christian fellowship is united around the gospel of Christ. It's what ties us all together. Since all four of the propositions in verse 1 are experientially obtained uh, through the reality of walking with Christ, Paul goes on to write in verse 2, Therefore fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Paul has appealed to the Philippian believers to experience God's love for them through Christ. Now he encourages them to overcome their divisions by focusing on the common calling of every Christian. Did you know that every Christian's number one calling is to share the gospel? We're all united around the gospel. That's why we're here. You see, the reality is that the reason that God didn't take us home the moment that we accepted him as our Savior is because he left us here to share the good news of the gospel with people that we know. 
Every believer is united together under one common goal. We are to share the gospel together, individually, as a church, as a family, as a person. So Paul reminds us here that, that the advancing of the gospel is important. Paul already says that he is full of joy because of, uh, uh, of what the Philippian believers have done. He says, as I pray for you, and he's talking about the Philippians, and as the gospel is preached in Rome, he said, I, my joy is, is just overwhelming. So then why would Paul say then, wait a minute, can you fulfill, can you fill to the brim my joy? So Paul reminds us that to make his joy complete, to fill his cup so that it's overflowing or filled to the brim, he says, unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he does this by asking them to do three things. He says, here's what I want you to do so that my joy can be overflowing and that the gospel will continue to move among the church. He first of all says, be like-minded. Be like-minded. The phrase literally means to set your mind on the same things. Now, <laughs> I'm afraid that if I were to poll the room today that we'd all have a bunch of different things on our mind. And it's not to say that we don't think about different things, but the Apostle Paul is saying that we ought to be of one mind together in that of the purpose of serving God. And he goes on to remind us later that that one-mindedness comes from one source. We're to have the mind of Christ. And when we have the mind of Christ, we can be one-minded. We can be of one thought. We can be of one purpose. We can be of one focus. What is the same thing that Paul wants us to focus on? Well, of course, Paul has called the Philippians his partners in the gospel. Paul is in chains for the gospel. Paul rejoices that the gospel is being preached in Rome. And Paul has called the Philippian believers back home to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. We looked at that last week. Paul is encouraging them to be like-minded, to be unified in their thinking, to think the same things when it comes to life's ultimate purpose and priority which is advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is calling them to unite around the gospel. We too today should not allow anything to take our focus off of the work of spreading the gospel to a lost and dying world. We ought to be like-minded. One purpose together. Heading in the same direction as a church. And then he goes on to say, having the same love. He says, by having the same love. Now, isn't it true that a Christian community is supposed to be a loving community? Isn't that what we're supposed to be? Isn't that, I mean, that kind of should be the banner of our sign. <laughs> you know, when the world is filled with hate, come to the church where it's filled with love. We're under the banner of the cross 
And the banner of the cross is all about the fact that God loved us enough that he sent his only begotten son, and his son loved us enough that he died on the cross for us. It's all about love. Each and every person in the body of Christ should have the same love for one another. Fellowship is not a one-way street. There's back and forth. It's a reciprocal love and relationship in the body of Christ. It goes both ways. Paul is also referring back to God's love for us in Christ that he is described in verse 1. We're to have the same love for each other as God has loved us. Listen, how do you love the unlovable? (laughs) Only by the love of God. How do we love our neighbor? Only by the love of God. How do we love our spouse? Only by the love of God. You see, our love is not something that we well up or dwell up or think up. Our love comes from the fact that we have been loved. And out of his love, we are able to love. And that's what Paul wants us to say. After all, Jesus said, how will they know you are my disciples? (laughs) By your love, one for another. Jesus reminds us, as I have loved you, love one another. Christian fellowship means each of us having the same love for each other that God had for us in and through Christ. A few folks over the last several weeks have come to me with concerns. And they have said to me, we're concerned about you. We're concerned that you might burn out with all of COVID shut down and COVID rebuild and all of the things that the last two years have piled upon the church. And I want you to know that typically pastoral burnout does not come from outside sources or pressure from task or work that needs to be done to do the work of the ministry. It's not those kinds of things that typically sideline pastors. It's not having to work 40, 60, 80, or even 100 hours a week that causes pastors to burn out and say, I'm done. But there is something that causes many pastors to burn out. It's conflict and division and bickering and complaining is what causes pastors to burn out and to leave the ministry and just say, I can't take it anymore. It's not hard work. Man, I don't mind hard work. I've been doing it since I was a boy. But I tell you, if there's disunity in the body of Christ, if there's complaining and bickering and fussing, that can burn a fellow out in a hurry. So Paul is urging the believers here, stand strong. Stand strong together. Continue to be like-minded, having the same love 
the same ministry, the same joy, not a burden. Practicing Christian fellowship by being that way will not burn out a pastor, but encourage them. It's not hard work. It's when we as a body of Christ allow disunity to, to begin to work its way into the fellowship of Christ. Church, we need to be careful. We need to make sure that we are uh, on guard, that we're loving one another, that we're tolerant of, uh, of one another's different thinking as long as it doesn't compromise the gospel. We may have difference of opinions on how we ought to do certain things, but we do it in love. And that's what Paul is saying. One-mindedness with one love. And then he goes on to the third thing. He tells them being one in spirit and in purpose. Paul says, fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love one for another, being of one accord, of one mind. The last phrase brings out the idea of one common goal. Being of one accord and of one mind, referring to being united as one soul, one purpose, one person with one task. We saw in, in chapter 1, verse 27, how that they faced the outside persecution. And Paul urged the Philippians to stand strong as one man against the opposition, and therefore they would draw nearer to Christ. Now, he says, we as a church must turn our attention inwardly, and we must make sure that as we face any inward division... He encourages them also to stand strong as one man united around one common goal and purpose, the gospel of Jesus Christ that causes us to love one another in the Lord. Paul says, outside persecution never destroys a church. It only strengthens it. Satan realizes that to do the destructive power of the church, he must get inside and drive a wedge between the body of Christ. We cannot, we cannot allow that to happen. If we are going to finish well, if we're going to rebuild and reunite and, and renew what God wants us to do as a church, we cannot be in disunity, but we must be unified as one. So I encourage you, church, listen to the words of Paul. Thirdly, in Christian fellowship, we humbly serve each other. Verses 3 and 4, Paul reminds us that this is our, our, our outward act. Paul gives us three instructions on how through Christ. And through Christian fellowship, we can humbly serve each other. He first tells us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
Now, selfish ambition was exactly what Paul was addressing back in chapter 1 when he said, those that were preaching the gospel to spite me. He said, that fooled them. I don't care. He said, let them preach the gospel. At least the gospel is being preached. You see, what Paul was saying was what they were doing to offend was simply vain glory. It was empty glory. There was no reward for them, but just reward for God. If it was wrong for the Christians who were stirring up trouble for Paul in Rome, he then makes it very clear it is as wrong for the Christians in the church to stir up trouble. And it is wrong for those of us here at Midway if we think that we ought to stir up something. My friends, it is not right. We should not. We cannot. There is no room for competition or rivalry in Christian ministry. How can we serve each other humbly if we're trying to compete with other ministries within the church? All ministries point to Christ, not us. It's all about Him and not us. Therefore, every ministry should have its same focus, glorify Christ, advance the gospel. Paul then speaks about vain conceit. The word literally means empty glory. Anything that we take glory for ourselves instead of serving others humbly is an empty glory. You will never experience Christian fellowship when you act out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And secondly, he says, consider others better than yourselves. One of the ways that we can always humble ourselves is to recognize that we put others ahead of us. You know, the Bible is very clear that it reminds us that he that is first shall be last. But he that puts himself last shall be first. We're reminded that God reminds us over and over again that we need not to put ourselves, uh, think more of ourselves than we ought to. But we ought to humble ourselves. Rather than selfish ambition, rather than vain conceit, we need to practice humility and consider others better than ourselves. The word better here does not mean better in the sense of more valuable or a better person. It simply means that better in the sense of, of more important, putting the needs of others ahead of our own needs. Willing to make a sacrifice for someone else means that we, 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 we put their need ahead of our own. As someone once said, love begins when someone else's needs are more important than my own. That's true in a marriage. It's true in parenting. It's true in every relationship that we find ourselves in, so why shouldn't it be true in the church as well? And then thirdly, he says, look to the interest of others, not just your own interest. 
Finally, Paul says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Consider the word look. It means to contemplate. It means to gaze. It means to focus on. It means, hey, are you awake? Are you paying attention? Look over here. Look at what I'm showing you. Take your look off of yourself and look over here. There's something you need to see. And that's what Paul says here. He's telling us to, to focus our eyes in on. Focus our lives on this. Not your own needs, but the needs of others. In Christian fellowship, every person puts the needs of other people first. Go to the book of Acts. If you don't understand what I'm saying, go to the first chapters of the book of Acts. The first establishment of the first church in the first century says that they sacrificed of all of their stuff and they put it together and said, I'm going to see who is in more need than me and I'm going to bless them what God has blessed me with. If it worked well for the first century church, it ought to work well for the 21st century church. It's time that we start putting others ahead of ourselves. It's time that we start looking, church, to the fact that if we want the world outside to be uh, knocking on our doors, if we want them to come in, they must see that we love one another in the love of Christ, in the things that they're not getting in the world, but they can get here in the church. It's time that we go back to the work of the church and putting others first. That does not mean that we have to neglect our own needs. It doesn't mean let your own health fall by the wayside or or you go without food so that you can give all your money away. I'm not asking you to do any of that. I'm asking you to stop looking in the mirror and start looking out the window. See, in the mirror, all we see is us. But when we look out the window, we see others so important. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this when he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love is not self-seeking. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, he says, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Our attitude should be the same as Christ. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul says that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ, which we will look at a little bit more as we go down these verses. Christ set the example for us to follow. We must get in our heads the first mind. We must start thinking We must start acting in the way that Christ has called us out of the world and into his world. Christian fellowship is that of one who humbles themselves to serve others as Christ served us. Can I just remind you that this is much, much bigger than simply getting along in the church? I know a lot of churches that their people get along, but they don't do anything. 
They get along well. They have fellowships and they have parties and, and they have all kinds of things, but they're not advancing the gospel at all because it's all about them and not about him. You see, we start putting him first and then we recognize that others are more important than us and we start serving one another with the love of Christ. And we have that inner affection towards them that says, you know what? Boy, I sure do love this church. I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the people. My friends, let me remind you that what we are doing is fighting a spiritual battle. We need to fight to prefer others. We need to wrestle with our own flesh to look out for the interest of others. Why is it a spiritual battle? Well, go back to Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 through 3 remind us of why it's a spiritual battle. God created us with the right heart, but sin crept in and gave us the wrong heart. We go back to the original fall of sin with Satan, and our primary sin was simply that of pride. The sin of pride and self-seeking was the root of all sin. So to walk in the opposite spirit of humility is a spiritual battle that we must battle every day. We must get up every morning and say, Lord, it's not about me, it's about you. The Apostle Paul put it like this, and I'll close. I crucify my flesh daily that it's not I that liveth, but Christ that lives through me. Let that be our morning prayer. And it will change the way we walk through our day and how we live out our life. And it will exemplify what Paul was saying right here to us. Ron, do we have a closing song? If you'll come. I tell you, church, it will be worth it all if we crucify our flesh. That is not I that liveth, but Christ that liveth through. There is a name above every name, and his name is Jesus. And that name is calling you today to make a decision. Will you walk after him? Will you follow him? Will you live for him? Will you serve him? Will you share him with others?